This is episode six with former South African batsman, media personality, and high performance coach, Hilton H.D. Ackerman. Welcome to the Process of Success podcast. My name is Tom Scolle, former professional cricketer, now athlete, mentor, and online entrepreneur. Each week, we're going to discuss what it takes to achieve success so that you can use the tips, techniques, and tactics to become your best. Whether it's sport, business, music, relationships, or anything else, this is an insight into the minds and lives of some of the world's most successful people. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now let's get into today's episode. I'm really excited about this interview with Hilton Ackerman as it's a bit different to most of our other interviews. Hilton, or HD Ackerman, is at a different stage of his life than many of our other guests. Ackerman played test cricket for South Africa in the late 1990s and since retiring from professional cricket in 2009 has had a stint in the media and as a high performance coach in South Africa. He then relocated his family to Perth and has been the head of cricket at a private boys school here in Perth for the last two years. It's great to have him on at this point in time when Australia is currently in South Africa battling away in the test series. He gave us a unique insight into what it's like to play in Cape Town the venue for the third and extremely controversial test. In this episode, we discussed what it was like growing up with a father who played international cricket and how it held him back from believing in himself. How Herschel Gibbs and Gary Kirsten used to push each other in their training sessions. Jacques Callis' mindset that ensured he was never in the debate for selection. How his father didn't think he was ready when he was selected for international cricket why he backs his players and how he teaches his young players to overcome the fear that everyone plays with, how he structures his coaching sessions for teenagers, plus a whole lot more. This is a really insightful episode from a very experienced and intelligent guy. So let's get into it. G'day guys, welcome to the Process of Success podcast. I'm here today with former South African cricketer, Hilton H.D. Ackerman. Hilton, thanks for joining us. On your pleasure, man. Good to be here. For those of you that might not know Hilton or his career, he uh, played 220 first-class matches, scored over 14,500 runs, including four te- uh, 40 centuries, uh, 230 list A matches, over 6,000 runs, and 55-2020 ma- matches, as well as four test matches. Does that sound about right? It sounds about right. Most players say they don't know their statistics, but they're lying. They're their <laughs> That's right. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Now, I normally start with um, getting into your story, but given this um, test series that's going on in South Africa at the moment, um, you being a former South African player, what are your thoughts on how the series has gone so far? Obviously, we're about to start the third test. One all. How do you think it's uh, shaped up so far? Well, there's, there's a little bit of needle, isn't there? It, it seems that... Um two closely contested sides. I mean, I think both bowling units are very strong and I think both batting groups are, are probably, when I say on the weaker side, that that's where their Achilles heel is. So it's going to be interesting. To, people are probably going to want the fifth test because I can see this going going 2-2. Interesting decision by uh, for to have Rabada's punishment overturned. I think there'll be a little bit of controversy around that, although I must admit I think that I think the series needed Kahisa Rabada to be to be a part of it. He's he's such a wonderful performer and he's already set the world alight over the short period of time that he's been in, in international cricket. But I think we're in for a ripper of a series at one one with two to go. What are you expecting out of this next test? What's the wicket likely to be like in yeah. this test? Newlands is always a very interesting... I mean, it's, a, it's where I was brought up in, in Cape Town. And, and the thing is, is uh, batting... You want to bat it, You want to be a batsman at number five or six at Newlands because it does a little bit up front. I mean, I think we go back to... Is it around 2012? Where I think Australia were 20, 21 for nine um, where the ball nipped around. South Africa won that test match and then... A couple of years later, Ryan Harris knocked over Mornay Morkel to win Australia the, the series there. It's always great test matches at Newlands because it's a good contest between bat and ball. There's always a little bit in, in the wicket up front. If you're prepared to put the work in, you can, you, can, you can get the runs. And then the overhead conditions can play a part. If suddenly you get an overcast day there or the wind blows in a particular direction, the ball can, can swing around corners. So, you know, captains are always looking out, looking out for that. There's a, there's a little trick that if you can, there's a brewery right behind Newton's Creek Ground and if you can smell the hops, they say bat first because it's going to be it's going to be flat. So if you don't smell the hops, well then you've got to have a little think. Well, there you go. What a really interesting fact about that cricket ground. And hopefully it doesn't. Or it would be ideal if there 
was a fifth test because hopefully it's not two two and there's no sort of no sort of winner at the end of the series. It's um, mm. something I think maybe they should look at for future test series. I think it's a, it's disappointing. I mean, I remember India touring South Africa a few years ago when I think South Africa were number one in the world. Graham Smith was the captain. India had uh, Tendulkar was was nearing the end of his career. Gary Kirsten was the coach of India at the time, and I think that ended. Two two, some people were crying out for a for a fifth test match. I just find the even numbers there's there's too much left open. It's almost a make it three or make or make it five. And because there's not not many draws in test cricket anymore, so if some if there is a result, yeah, everyone wants to see. I don't want to see a drawn yeah. test series. I think that's a, such a great point. I think with the advent of T20 cricket now, we're seeing the pace that people are batting at. That there's so much time in a test match now that there's so few so few draws, which is great for the game. Awesome. Well, we look forward to seeing how that unfolds over the next two test matches. Now, moving on to yourself, on to your story. Uh, you were born in Cape Town, as you've said, where you grew up. What? I just want to get a picture of your childhood. Um, what's your earliest memory of playing cricket? Um, well, I was fortunate enough to be brought up in a cricketing household. My father was a, a, a professional cricketer. You can call it professional because, uh, well, I say in inverted commas because they weren't paid a great deal of money in those days. Interesting fact is that he was actually picked in the South African side to tour Australia in the early 70s, and that tour was cancelled because of apartheid. And there was a rest of the world 11 that was chosen to tour Australia, and he, he made that side. And they... He came here and he played against uh, the likes of Lily and, and Mackenzie and the Chapel Brothers. It was a, it was a good series. Sobers captained the, uh, the rest of the world. Strong left-hander Graham Pollock was in that side. Tony Gregg, who we all know from Channel 9, was in that side. Um, and my late father got, got 100 in the opening, I say, test match. They, they never counted as test matches, which I think left a bit of taste in a lot of those men's mouths because many, many years later, there was a world team that came to Australia to play against that powerhouse Australian team of the 90s and early 2000 and that was counted as as a test match so uh, you never got it never got a test match hundred but yeah so I was I was brought up in a, in a cricketing household he played for for Western Province who I later went on and played for um, so I was really brought up at Newlands Cricket Ground watching him watching him play and um, my earliest memories of playing was at was at lunchtime or at tea time with a tennis ball whether it be with tape wrapped up on one side of the ball just meeting young young boys and, and girls at the ground and, and playing um, in those makeup games on the field that would be my earliest memory of, of playing playing the game wow what a what a way to, to grow up and that mm. sort of reminds me of Mitch or Sean Marsh who grew up with, with Jeff in the Australian team and, and being around the, the players you must have learnt a lot without really even realizing back then about cricket in those in that environment. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to get there a little bit later. You know, I think that's a it's a point that I try and bring up now with 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 the young cricketers coming through. Is that they don't watch as much as what the cricketers of the past did. You know, with their um, the world they live in now with 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 mobile telephones is they're not prepared to go and sit at a ground and watch a day. And as you rightly point out, I think without realizing you would you would sit down at a ground and and watch. Uh, I can only refer to South African players, guys like Peter Kirsten, gentleman by the name of Alan Lamb who played for England. There was a guy called Ken McEwen who actually came out and played here um, many years ago. Just watching them bat, watching them put an innings together and only later on in life do you realise the things that they taught you without even knowing that they were they were passing on information. Without a doubt it was a, it was a great way to, to be brought up into the cricketing world. Awesome. And then what age were you when you started to play sort of competitively and, and then um, beyond that get one-on-one -on -one coaching either from your father or someone else and and really take it a bit more seriously Com competitively that's interesting i think competitively started from birth you know <laughs> even even on those 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 little makeup games at the ground there was always a, a competitive edge um i went to a school called uh, rondebosch boys high where gary kirsten who played test cricket for south africa coached india jonathan trott who played played for england went uh, went to rondebosch as well and that was it was really a, a cricketing school um, while it was a state school, it just had a rich heritage when it came to came to sport, and so um, we played competitive sport there right from under ten all the way through to to first team cricket, which would be I suppose year twelve here in in, in Australia. So. Um, it was always a, a competitive environment. One-on-one um, -on -one coaching never really took place, and you know I, I look at again today how you know some of the schools here in Perth have Graham Wood, ex-Australian cricketer, coaching them, Paul Terry, ex-England cricketer, coaching them, and 
I think my French teacher was my first team cricket coach. Um, my father's contribution was was minimal. He he sort of said, "Well, I'm just going to let him let him go," which which I think was great parenting because I I learned to love the game for myself. Uh, it wasn't because he pushed it he pushed it on me, but I do think that his coaching took place in um, in just little different ways. I mean, I, one day I came home after having a I think I'd had a bad few few games, and I said, "Oh, I'm giving up the game, and this is ridiculous. I can't play this game." And next minute, my kit had disappeared, and I. Uh, I think I went I went downstairs. I said, "Does anyone see my cricket kit?" And he said, "Well, it's outside in the dustbin because you said you were giving giving up, so I've thrown it away. You don't need it anymore." Well, that was just like a red rag <laughs> to a bull. I was outside. Kit was out. Don't you tell me what I'm going to do. And so um, I think he had his ways of of teaching me, but it certainly wasn't from a, a technical a technical point of view, more mental side. I think. Awesome! What a brilliant story. Um, and then, how did your teenage years look? Um, were you sort of training every day? And at what point did you start to think, "I'm pretty good here, and maybe I can make my own career out of this"? Yeah, I, I don't think I ever thought I was good enough to play. Um, I knew what I wanted to do, but there were guys at school that I played with that I always thought were much better than me, and I hero worshipped them. And it was—it's ironic that later on, I'm the one that went and became a professional cricketer when they didn't. But um, and I suppose that that's just the desire taking over. They probably just didn't have the desire to to pursue it because they were certainly had a lot more a lot more ability than than I did. But my teenage years were I, I, sp- I played two summer sports and two winter sports. I played rugby and squash in winter, and I played cricket and tennis in the summer. Uh, we were allowed to do that at at, uh, at school. Um, it's the way the sporting program was was designed. Um, we were encouraged to play as much as we could. So I didn't. I don't think I ever, when I say I knew that I wanted to be a professional cricketer, I think that only sort of came about my last year, I think, at, at school because there was talk that South Africa were going to re-enter the international stage. We were still isolated from the world throughout my, my school life and playing for your province, which would be the, your state here in Australia, um, was the, that was the, the main thing that you could, you could aim for and there wasn't a great deal of, of money in it. So it was only in probably the last year or two where there was talk that hang on you know Nelson Mandela is probably going to be released from prison and South Africa will re-enter the international fray so yeah early on it was just I just loved playing the game. Awesome awesome and then you've mentioned your father and you said he didn't have a huge impact but but coached you and taught you in his own ways did you have other mentors and and right throughout your career how important were your mentors or, and maybe speaking to your father regularly? Yeah, don't get me wrong when I say that he didn't have a huge impact. He had, he probably had the biggest impact of all, but he just, it, it wasn't a forceful one. It was just one of, I'm going to let you, you know, map out your own journey and if, if you fall, I'll be there to prop you up rather than, you know, the, the father that's saying to the cricket coach, he must bat at number two because he's going to be a professional cricketer and, you know, he, he just allowed that to run its course while offering little bits and pieces on the side which which had a big impact on on my life and my career but i only noticed it later on when you think when you know the penny drops you go oh, that's why he did that or that that's why he said that and he, he was a well-respected player and coach in in south africa you know later on in, in his life um yeah I'm, tr- I'm trying to think now duncan fletcher so when i when i made my debut for for western province uh, which is the side the, the side based in cape town he was he was the coach um, and he just allowed you the freedom to to try things, to express yourself. Failure was part of the game. You know, he made you understand that. Um, the the real difficulty for me was the fact that because my my father was involved in the in the inner circles of cricket in Cape Town, was whenever I got picked for a side, it was am I being picked because I'm the son? You know, why am I why am I here? And and that took a little bit of time for me to for me to get over that. Um, even if my results were good, it always, and that's my own fault, that was my own negativity and my own mind playing games with myself. I was always concerned, what are others thinking? And it probably hindered my my career in a way, in that maybe I could have had, had a better career if I was a little bit more um, positive about my, my own ability. Um, I think that sort of came right at the end of my career, career when I went over and I played in England where my father had, had nothing to do to do with it. Um, and it was my own demons. No one, no one made me feel as though it was because of him. 
Right, yeah, right, interesting. Now, what was your progression like um, into first class cricket? Um, how old were you and was it on the back of dominating club cricket or grade cricket in Cape Town? Yeah, so finished school and then immediately uh, started playing playing club cricket, which was of a of a decent standard in, in South Africa. They had a they had a thing called Colts cricket there, which was an under twenty three team. So you had a state or province under twenty three team that that played in, in a competition. So uh, a lot of a lot of us played together there, um, but you you weren't necessarily twenty two or twenty three. There were boys of eighteen and nineteen in that in that setup. And I think they picked you from they picked you from there. There were very very few were picked straight from school back back in those days. You know you had to be. I mean, Jacques Callis wasn't even picked straight from school. We, we we know the career that he ended up with. He also played played club cricket, and I remember actually playing a club game against him where the the front three were Kirsten, Desmond Haynes, Jacques Callis, and that was a it was a club side, which was it's unheard of now in South Africa for your your state cricketers to be playing club cricket, which I think is very sad because I think players are missing out on a vital part of their of their schooling. So. Club system, then picked in the Colts team, and then made my first class debut. You probably 94, 95, I think, somewhere around there. I think I was 21. 21 had spent a bit of time playing club cricket in England in the in the winters, in the South African winters, which was great as an overseas professional. Um, overseas professional, you earned like 50 pounds or something over the week. But they, um, you learned there that if you if you didn't perform. Your team lost. It was as, it was as simple as that. So it taught you responsibilities. Um, so I loved my time playing that, that little bit of club cricket. There were plenty of Australians over there, West Indians at the time, and, and you mixed. And um, yeah, it was a good it was a good education for me to get into into first class cricket. And I did okay when I when I got into the side. I failed in the first game. I got 93 in the second game. We played against a side called Border. I was LBW to go pit Puerta, I'll never forget 93. So seven short of 100 in, in the second one, um, and it just sort of progressed from there. I think I felt like okay, I, I, I should be in this team, even though those demons I spoke about earlier reared their ugly heads every now and again. But um, you always want to get runs runs early on to feel a, a, a part of the side. So yeah, that was that was my introduction to to first class cricket, and it was I, I played played Western Bronze for 10 years. Awesome and so I've heard from a lot of people you sort of you think you're good enough for the next level but it's not until you actually um, perform at that level to, that you get the belief. Is that how you felt? You sort of got into the side and then you, you sort of until you got that 93 yeah. you thought am I good enough the 93 came and you, that allowed you to relax and say okay I am good enough for this level. Yeah I think it's such a critical point you know you get so many people that people can tell you you're good enough but not until you've experienced it are you going to feel at home within that environment. I mean those are players that you've been watching because most of the players in that side have been there two, three, four years before. So you're at school, you're watching those guys, you, you're leaving school to go and watch a day-night cricket match or on a Sunday you're going to go and watch the last day's play of a, of a shield match as I did, it was called the Curry Cup. And now you you thrust amongst those those men, and you in the same dressing room as them, and it, it's uncomfortable. But um, because they also weren't as forthcoming as what they probably are nowadays, in that you know they sort of you didn't feel at home until you got you got runs, and then. And I, and I say this, they probably were exactly the same, but you just didn't feel as though they were treating you the same until you got runs. They're probably exactly the same, but it's just, again, it's your mind trying to get used to the fact that do I belong or, or don't I belong. But I, I think in change room environments these days are far more open. I think mm -hmm. back then, from what I've read and what I've heard, it, they were far more um, hierarchy system where the, the more experienced players, um, it was their way, or and the younger players just sort of bit their tongue a bit. Do you think that's that's the case? Absolutely. I mean, I look at it in that, so basically you've got a team that's together. Now suddenly that team, it's a team, it's friends. Now what happens is one of those friends gets left out that team for a new guy. And it's almost as if um, that once you perform for them, it's right, right, well now we'll accept you into our group. And they forget about that mate of theirs that's gone a long time ago. But, you know, 
you're important to their to their success. Once they see that you can contribute to that success, I think then then they embrace you. But I think coaches and management and psychologists, there's so many backroom staff now to try and make sure that team culture is right, that when young guys come into the side, there's sort of this, you've got to make them feel welcome. And, and, and I agree with that, I think it's great. Um, but to be fair, when I look back on, on, on my career, no one was nasty to me. No one didn't make me feel feel welcome. I just felt more comfortable once once I had produced, produced the goods. Yep. Now from there, I think it was 97, 98, you were selected in the South African test side. You played four tests. How was that experience? And did you find it a massive step up from first class cricket? Yeah, the, the thing about that is I'd had a really good year for, for Western Province. I think I got five hundreds in five games, so five on the bounce, something like that, or four, and I don't know. And so I, I was the form player in, in South Africa. And the South African batting lineup had been struggling. One of Australia's favourite sons, Daryl Cullinan, was um, was having a torrid time in the national side. And I just felt I had to be next, you know. And all the newspapers were writing, you know, is he next? Is he next? Because you're the form player. Um, and I never forget walking into my parents' home and overhearing my dad saying to my mother, he's not ready. And we had a big argument about it because I, I mean, who does he think he is? You know, I, I'm the form player. I've got all these hundreds. And he just said, look we'll talk about it another time um, anyway yeah I got I got picked to play the second test match against Pakistan in Durban uh, got a half century in my in my first innings um, and while it was a massive difference because you had Waka Yunus, you had Shobaktar, Mushtaq Ahmed uh, in, the, in the next test match Wazim Akram joined those three so it was an incredible attack to play against you know when you play your state cricket you've probably got two or three guys that, that, that are decent bowlers and one that you can catch up with. You know, in test cricket, it was just relentless. You know, it really was all about the, the mental side of the game. Um, and did a right against Pakistan, then came across a guy by the name of Mutaimur Lithran in Sri Lanka and he bowled me out. I'd never seen anything like this before. And if I, if I go back, Bob Woolmer was the coach at the time for South Africa and what, as exceptional a coach as, as he was, um, I don't remember him ever saying to me, look, bat on off stump. You know, he, he, he spins the ball prodigiously, he bowls the ball miles outside off stump, just working through the leg side. I don't remember him ever saying that. And um, I remember we played at Newlands and I batted at three and I got in and I got to 20 and, I, and he came on to bowl. For the first time I was now going to play against this guy and he had a mid-off, he had a silly point and he had a slip and I looked at this and I thought I'm going to crucify you, you cannot bowl to a field like this and I went down the wicket, tried to hit him through extra cover, caught and bowled 20 you know, and realised okay hold on a second this guy is, is something special. So after Sri Lanka um, I got dropped from the side which I was upset about because there was a tour to England so I went out of the best 11 and I couldn't make the best 16 which was you know the soul destroying. And eventually my old man and I, we, we got to talk about why I overheard him say that to my mom. And he just said to me, look, I would have preferred if you'd have gone to England, because in those days you played a lot of county cricket before you played the test matches. And I think you, as the person I know you are, would have settled into the side. You would have got some runs in the county system. You would have felt confident in the environment. Um, and I was a very immature cricketer when I got picked for South Africa. We talk about guys like Ponting picked at a young age, Graham Smith picked at a young age. They were mature cricketers at, at that age. Michael Hussey maybe matured a little bit later as, as a cricketer and we saw the career that he had. And I think about what type of player I was at the age of 30 and I think he was right. I was far too immature to be playing at that level against that quality opposition. I didn't know how to bat. Um, so is that a regret? Um, no, I, like we spoke off air, I, you know, I don't regret, I've, I've represented my country, but um, I would like to have had a, a, a better career, and if my, my father was the selector, I probably, I probably would have. So what would your 30-year-old self, who knew more and was more, more mature, have said, or what was different about you then, to when you actually did play? Well, I wouldn't have been content with 50 against Pakistan. I would have known how to go on. I, you know, I'd only got a handful of hundreds, even though I've got those few in a row. I would never have tried to hit more Litherin through extra cover. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just a no-no. Um, I mean, he didn't even have the doozer in those days. He only had the off spinner. He had to learn to bowl the doozer because people started to work him out. 
So there was, you know, just the understanding of the game and just the understanding of looking and seeing a field that's placed and, okay, that's the field place, so that's what a bowler's going to be trying to do to me. I just knew so much more about the game at the age of 30. Then again, I know more about the game now than I did when I was 30, but that's just the beauty of it is that, you know, you, your eyes go, but your brain gets, uh, gets smarter when it comes to the game. So, yeah, I, I just think I, I understood me, how I performed under pressure, what happened to me when I was under pressure and how I went about dealing with it. So, you know, those players that if you can teach people to understand um, their own game at a younger age, I think they've got a greater chance of making it at a, at a younger age. Awesome. That's something we're massive on here at Cricket Mentoring. Now, just want, I was going to get onto that a bit later, but now that you've touched on it, how did you personally deal with pressure or how did you understand yourself more? Gee, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, the, well, the first thing is I think I started to understand that that's why we played the game, is that to get, when you got put under pressure, that's when the adrenaline started to flow, the competitive nature of the game, and actually that's why we play. If you, if you don't play, if, so if you don't want to deal with pressure, you're, you're in the wrong profession. And I'm not talking about cricket, I'm talking about sport in, in, in general, or maybe business as well, is... You, you're going to at the highest level. You are going to be you're going to be put under pressure. The media are looking at you. The public are looking at you. Your teammates are looking at you. Um, so how did I how did I learn to deal with it? Well, the first thing that I had to learn to well, the first thing I had to learn to deal with was that was I good enough to to play at that level? And I think I started to understand that later on that I, I was good enough. Um, my preparation changed uh, in that I didn't I didn't hit as many balls as I as I got older. I prepared better mentally for what I had to do the next the next day or over the course of the next four days when it was first class cricket. But it, but it's a it's a tough question because um, it's, yeah. it's probably hard to put into words. Yeah. You you understood it and you knew what you had to do in the moment and leading into it. But I suppose now that we've moved on from then, it, it, it is quite a hard thing to articulate. Yeah, I think that that's it. And, you know, people talk about in the zone and all those type of things. I mean, I, one particular innings I played where I got a lot of runs is probably the only time that I do not remember. I got some runs against Glamorgan for Leicestershire and I don't remember a particular stroke not a stroke people say yeah but you batted for so long but i don't remember a thing whereas it's the only time if people say that that's what the zone is that's the only time i was i was ever in that in in that um in the zone but other times i can i can remember lots of lots of things but i, I knew what to do if i was getting nervous uh, uh, if i was getting mentally tired I knew how to deal with with those things. If I was getting mentally tired, it, it was a, whether it was taking my pad off and saying I've got an itch, or taking my boots off and saying there's a stone in there just to gather my thoughts. Whereas when you're younger, you just let the game play out. The game just keeps going, keeps going. Eventually, it just gets too quick for you, and, and you make a mistake. Um, so just little, what would you call it? Um, little a, habits or routines. Or, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't uh, essentially a, a routine, but it was. Hold on here, you're getting ahead of yourself stop assess okay now we can we can move on we're going to take a break from hilton for a minute last week i interviewed wa wicketkeeper sam whiteman if you haven't listened to that episode then please download it and listen to it now but here's a little insight into what sam had to say oh it was all pretty exciting um you know i got picked for australia ra off the back of a decent season and to be honest i had no expectations i was playing a really good australia ra side like phil hughes um and uh to be honest, I had no expectations and did really well. Got a, got a hundred and batted with Mitch. Uh, and then suddenly I just felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, I went back to WA and you know, I was, there was talk about the next test keeper and um, I probably felt that pressure. I focused on uh, playing for Australia instead of probably focusing on playing for WA and, uh, and consequences, I had, I had a really bad year. Now let's get back to Hilton. What about dealing with nerves? Um, Again, two different types of nerves. You know, there's the nerves where you're blooming dry retching and things like that. And maybe it's because there's someone out there who's bowling it at 140 clicks an hour. Um, but the other nerves were nerves that I'm, I'm going to bat. And, and I looked at that as, as, as part and parcel of, of the game. You know, that was normal. And it was amazing that you'd be very nervous at naught 
you'd get off the mark and those nerves would be gone. And it's like, I've got one run. It's not even, a suck. you know, you get out now, you're gonna be upset. But it's amazing how you just got off the mark and those nerves were, those nerves were gone. But I wasn't someone that, that was very, that was very nervous. Um, yeah, I wasn't someone that, 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 was, that was very nervous. I, I know that in, 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 in cricket, you've got to understand that you fail more than you succeed. It, it, it's a terrible game when it, comes, when it comes to that. I mean, if you look at the greatest players that have ever lived, and we use 50 as a benchmark, Tendulkar, Ponting, they get past 50 once every three knocks. I mean, that's a success rate of 33%. And I always say, imagine an attorney with a success rate of 33% or a surgeon. Well, he wouldn't have a job. You know, so learning to deal with failure is a massive part of being, of being a batsman. Um, and the great players, they, they, they get out of those slumps a lot quicker than the average player because the average player dwells on those failures. They dwell on those failures. Um, so trying to understand that, you know, you... I get out caught slip. Was it a was it a technical? Is it well? The first question I used to ask myself is that did I choose the incorrect shot? Yes, it wasn't a half volley. I drove it. It got caught slip. Right, gone. Park. Move on. You know, too often players nowadays technical issue. Pick up the bat. Head. What, what am I doing? Am I leading with my foot? Am I leading with my shoulder? And more often than not, it's just a simple thing. I pulled it one that wasn't short enough, and so I chopped it on. Done. Often it's decision making. It's the de it's the decision making, you know, and, and, and that's the, the, some of the things that I try and bring into my coaching now. It's like if you're getting out court slip over and over and over again, fine. We'll go look at some video footage and we'll see if we can see something technical. But if you're getting court slip, court cover, court mid off, court mid on, court fine leg, there's <laughs> there's some decision making that's 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 not happening here. And I think that a, that a player can respond to that a lot better than constantly having to assess his technique. I mean, players now get out. I know we're jumping all over the place here, sorry, but I'm just thinking, Good. you know, players get out and they rush upstairs and they say to the video analyst, show me, show me. I used to say to the video analyst, I don't want to see anything. Please, will you cut me a CD or whatever, a DVD of me doing well? I want to go home and put in my computer me getting 50 or 100 because tomorrow I want to feel good about myself. I don't want to feel like I, I'm, I'm hopeless and I can't play. So... While lots of players and coaches may like to look at the video footage, I do think it can be a very dangerous thing to get involved in. While good for, for some things, you know, I just think you, as a player you want, you want to feel good about yourself, not be just analysing technique and that all the time. Absolutely, and that's something that we talk to our athletes about is that when they get nervous or when they're in a bit of a form slump, to visually sort of remember when they did well and play that over in the head because like you say I think that the players that go through big form slumps or the players that don't have sort of deep belief in themselves they're dwelling on the failures and they're replaying the failures over and over and they completely forget that hang on a minute I can play the game I am a good player yeah. and that's something we really encourage all the younger players who don't have video footage to look over. No I think it's great advice you mentioned visualization there I mean you know nowadays there's, there's psychologists and things that come into the change room and people say, oh, you know, did you visualize? And being pretty old school, I'd say, oh, no, I've never visualized. And then I started to think, and I remember distinctly, I used to, when I used to drive to the ground from home in the morning, um, I used to commentate myself. I'd turn the radio down and I would commentate, whether it was Benno or Chapel or Laurie, but, you know, I'd try and put the voice on, but I'd be commentating myself to 100 you know, and I used to find myself once I got to that hundred in the car, there'd, get, there'd be goosebumps on my own on my arms. I mean, it was just ridiculous. If someone in the traffic saw me, they'd think, "Who's this <laughs> man?" But later on down the line, you know, years later, you said, "I was actually I was visualizing." You know, without knowing that I was visualizing, that's exactly yeah. what I was what I was doing. So sometimes. You know, as old farts, we can we can sort of say, oh, you know, oh, visualization. And yeah. all that. Meanwhile, you did it all. You yeah. Know, you actually did that stuff. The other thing that we sort of talk a bit about is positive self-talk because mm. the story that you replay in your head is sort of what makes you feel either good or bad. And it sounds like you're, you were doing a bit of visualizing but also putting a, a good story in your head. Oh, Ackerman hits another four through cover and you're, you're yeah. making yourself feel good, which I believe, and I said this to you off air before, I'm a big believer and everyone that follows our stuff knows that I think the best player are the ones that can get in the right mental and emotional state as often as possible mm, absolutely. to allow them to make good decisions. Everyone, people succeed with a with an ordinary technique, but they're often the ones that have a, an incredibly strong mind and are incredibly disciplined. Yeah, 
Graham Smith, I mean, he was ridiculed for his technique throughout his career. Average over 50, Steve Smith, I and mean, I don't know if it's the name Smith, but you know, when, I, I was one of them. When he came onto the international scene, I was like, no chance, absolutely no chance. No, I mean, he's just worked it out, you know what I mean? Pretty, it, it's pretty simple when you, when you actually look at it and break it down. But so many players with, uh, with what were deemed bad techniques, Hashimamla, I mean, Brian, Lara, bat up, you know, head down. They made it work because they were just they had great hand-eye coordination, but they made their technique work for them. So and I they understand their game well, don't they? Yeah. yeah. So knowing what you know now and, and having just talked about that, how do you coach young players you're, you're a head coach you've just had success with Guildford Grammar in the yeah. Darlow Cup first title in 32 years yeah. congratulations thank you um, how do you approach your coaching with young players you, you, there's obviously technical elements especially we're talking batting here mostly but how do you you, you mentioned you, you don't get too much into technique if they nick one or whatever how do you go about being a mentor or a coach for a young player so, so the, the big thing for me arriving at Guildford and, and not having worked in a, in a school environment or in a, with a teenage environment, I'm, in South Africa I worked in their high performance system with the South African A side, the, the ladies side, the, um, you know, sometimes the emerging team, but not really school boys, maybe the under 19s, but they're two years out of school, was just understanding how teenagers work. That was the first thing. So for most, for, for the best part of it, it was just sitting and watching and, and listening to how how they operate but self-talk was a big thing um, for, for them they 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 dwell on their failures because bearing in mind their failures are the, the, the distance between their failure and success is a lot bigger than someone who's a, who's a professional cricketer so to get them back up again is is major because they will go fail 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 and but you just need to just keep them keep them going um, from a technical point of view, so many schoolboys fall over onto the offside and try and hit the ball through the leg side, and I think that's due to their dominant hand, which is, you know, if they're right-handed, they're trying to hit it through the leg side with their right hand, left-handed, it's the other way around. I think they're still growing. I think they're still trying to get stronger. So very simple messages. If you're trying to fall over, if you're falling over, try and hit the ball to mid-off. I'm not going to stand behind you and put pin your shoulders against the net. Try and hit the ball to mid-off. You know what you perceive as straight is not necessarily straight because bowler bowls the ball from slightly wide. Um, break down things, make it more simple for them. So when we had run chases, it it would be right. How much we've got to chase down? Right, we've got to chase down 240. So we've got 10 partnerships. But each partnership's got to contribute 24. How much do you have to get of that partnership? That's 12. That's not a big. That's not a big number. You know, they just see big, big all the time. So to just try and simplify things for the, for the teenagers was was what we try to do. And I, and I think that they they enjoyed that 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 side of it. Um, I mean, we we had we had lots of success on the, on the batting front. From from the bowling perspective, all I try to work on with with those boys was. I actually try to treat them more like professional cricketers and just say, look, if you do the basics more often than, than the opposition, uh, you, you will succeed because you, you're playing against your age group and their patience levels are like yours. They're non-existent at, at this age. And so we just try to hit lengths relentlessly, which is exactly what they do at, uh, at a higher level. You know, the, the higher the level, I say the easier the game, it's because the surface you play on gets better. but the ball lands in the same area more often than it doesn't. I mean, you've got a schoolboy, you'll get two there, two down the leg side, one bouncer, full toss. So we just try to do basic, basic things. And um, yeah, we did it better than anyone else over the course of the, of, of the competition. But I'll, to be fair, I also had a, I had a good group of cricketers. I had some high-end cricketers, um, and we'd worked with these guys for, for two years because it's very difficult to... What is the word? It's very difficult to grow in the space of six months. I mean, uh, you know, so we had them for the for two seasons, and I think that there was there was lots of growth on that side. Awesome. And now you you spoke um, earlier about Duncan Fletcher and how he created an environment where people accepted failure. Yeah. Is that something you focused on with the young guys as well, and that's allowed them to bounce back quicker from their failures? Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, I'd, when when I did at the start of the season, I, I said to them, "You're going to play the next game." And you know they they found that quite satisfying, and that they said that previously that they, they felt that if they failed they'd be dropped straight away one game. And I just gave them that an understanding that that I understand the game, and that I understand you'll fail. 
it, it's part and parcel. So I, how can I leave you out after you failed in, in one match? You know, how can I actually leave you out after you failed in, in two matches? I cannot expect that of you. So I, I gave them, a lot of people were critical of that actually. They said, look, you, you, you're now telling boys that they can't be dropped. And I said, look, for me, I knew who my best 11 or 12 were and I needed them to know that I that I backed, backed them, them in that in that space, and they, I think they responded well. You know, I mean, at the end of the season, they did, one of the things that they didn't because I said to them, look, I need you to assess me. They said they really liked the fact that I said to them, you're going to be playing the next couple of games, irrespective of what happens. So I, I mapped out a couple of um, facts for them. I said to them, the surface you play on is not a piece of glass. It's not flat. You know, it's it's got grass on it. It's undulating sometimes. Uh, the ball you play with is not round. It's it's got a seam on it. It changes shape just ever so. So the ball deviates. You it's impossible for you to hit the middle of the bat every time. Just to make them understand that the game that they play is hard, and that it's difficult to play the perfect innings, and that an innings ebbs and flows. You know you'll play well for half an hour. You'll play terribly for ten minutes. And just to understand how it how it all operates. So so we did quite a lot of talking. But when I say we in that. I asked a lot of questions and to try and see if they would would provide provide answers and as the seasons progressed and I say the seasons because I had them for two is so they were more comfortable to open up and say look you know this is how we feel and you know when we do when we do fail we think well, should we go play volleyball and, and then and our friends finish at 12 o'clock where we got to play all day and things like that so yeah th- th- I just try to make it you know to understand for them to understand that I know what they're going through, that it is a very, very hard game. It is a very hard game and it's extremely challenging. And while everyone focuses on rowing and says that rowing is the toughest sport in the world, I just say to them, well, look, you've got to row hard for six minutes. You've got to bat for six hours. You tell me which is the which yeah. is the tough game. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's such a, a great philosophy. I think I know when I sort of played, um, my, had my professional career, I, I whenever I had an opportunity in the first team, I never felt safe or secure and, and never felt backed and that really held me back from probably playing at my best and I think that allows players to to then go and play with freedom. Yeah. Um, something that I've seen a lot in, in young athletes, uh, young cricketers who I work with is um, n- not is dwelling on a, mis- a single mistake and sort of they, they're always, you've just mentioned there, but they're always sort of chasing perfectionism. If they don't hit it out of the middle, they get annoyed. And, and something I try and do, similar to what you've just said, is educate them that you're not always going to play at your best. Is that something that you've, you've just mentioned that you've worked quite a lot on, was, is not letting them sort of dwell on mistakes to, for too long? Yeah, I mean, I remember my, my late father, so I'm sorry I keep bringing it up, but he was a major factor in my, in my life in that he... He always used to say to me, do you know that at the end of the month when you get your brown envelope that says batsman on it and it's got your paycheck in it, that there's a bowler that also gets a brown envelope that says outswing bowler on it. And, you know, he's not there just for your fun and games. He's there to try and get you out. And he has a certain amount of skill to his disposal. So he is allowed to beat the outside edge. He's allowed to nip one back off the seam. A spinner is allowed to spin. They're allowed to spin the ball. And so when it doesn't hit the middle of the bat, understand that you're competing against somebody else and you've got the elements to deal with, whether it's an overcast day, whether it's a surface that's nipping around. And it's for you to be able to, to, deal with, to deal with that. So those are like the kind of discussions that we would have with, with the team to, to try and say to them, you know, you've, got, you've actually got no right to play the perfect innings. You know, you'll probably play two in your whole life the perfect innings and one of them will be an unbelievable 38 where you just you hit seven fours six or something and you know you it's the perfect innings and then you make the mistake inevitably what happens is the big hundred is is the is the one that's riddled with with ups and ups and downs and sometimes the most talented players I remember working in South Africa at the high performance center there was a young guy by the name of Stian van Sale who actually played a couple of test matches a left-hander he's at Sussex now yeah very reminiscent of Gawa in that in that David Gawa you watch him back and you think this guy doesn't care but just because of how he played and I always just say to him Stian I want to see you get an ugly 60 like it must be dreadful where you walk in and you're embarrassed because you've inside edged and outside edged and it's just been a disgraceful thing because then you've shown me that you prepared to scrap through through those periods because every player needs you need a bit of scrap in you because those those big hundreds they they can't be perfect like there is going to be periods in there 
I mean, I think of Michael Clark's 100 at Newlands. I don't know if you remember Mornay Morkel going in, in for about shoulder. an hour and it was compelling viewing and you thought Morkel's got him. There is no way that this guy is surviving. And he was horrendous. He got hit absolutely everywhere. And then from there, scored one of the great test hundreds at, at Newlands, with the, which is the test match that they won, captain's innings. But it was a great example of someone that was prepared to go through a period where he was almost embarrassed for how he was being worked over by someone, you know, and then at the end, he's the guy that shone through. Yeah, amazing innings that one. Now, while we're on your coaching and, and the, the athletes you're working with, what does your what do your sessions look like? How do you you said it took you a while to work the teenagers out? How do you try and structure your sessions? Is there a combination of drills, live nets, match scenarios? What do you think works best? We've got a lot of coaches that watch and listen, and, and sort of what what do you do with your players normally? Yeah, I find cricket bizarre to be honest. In that I don't know another game you would be able to point out games to, but I don't know another game where you practice shorter than you play you know if you think about cricket as from an individual perspective we say to a guy you're going to get 20 minutes in the nets oh and then by the way on the weekend you've got to go back for six hours I mean we, we, we don't teach people to back for that amount of time they've actually got to work it out themselves so we do create scenarios but again in a, in a school environment you've got a Tuesday and a Thursday to work with so a young boy's got half an hour or 40 minutes of batting so we would say look on a Tuesday um, particularly at Guildford, we know that the, the ground staff water, the, they, they flood the, the wickets on a, on a Sunday night. So we know on Tuesday they're actually going to do a bit because he needs them to last. So on Tuesday, right, what we'll do is I'll give you older balls. It's not a problem because otherwise they go all over the place. But I need, I need you to be nice and tight. First, let's look at your first sort of 20 minutes of your innings. And then on Thursday, the, with the heat in Perth, the pitches are flattened out a little bit. Right, now we, let's, let's give you a match scenario where we are. We're on top. We Each batsman will get something different depending on where they bat in, in the batting lineup. Um, and it might be a situation where, okay, you're walking in at number seven, you can play the Adam Gilchrist innings because we're 200 for five. Or this Thursday, I'm changing that up a little bit. We now are 100 for five. So do you play like Gilchrist? Or do you bail us out of trouble? How do you go? So we do try and give them their match scenarios. Um, it, it sounds old-fashioned. I did it once. I did it once where I gave them the you out, you out situation, but that was because they were bugging around in the nets, you know, and guys were getting out 10, 15 times, and I was just like, I'm wasting, I'm wasting my time. We only did it once, and it, it's, an, it's really an irrelevant uh, net session, but it was sort of to imprint on them that, look, um, you, you don't waste my time. Um, but yeah, match scenarios, definitely, and particularly during fielding drills. Yeah. During fielding drills, we try and put try and put them under pressure as much as possible because when there's no run, it's easy to pick the ball up and throw it over the top. So um, we we would continually try and put players under pressure when they were when they were doing fielding or when it's catching or running people out. Um, bowlers, again, um, I think the match situations were more dictated to to the to the batsman, and that's probably because I come from a batting background. Um, but to say to the bowlers, you know, again, the basics, you're at the top of off stump, it's for you to work out what type of surface we're on. If we're in India, the ball might need to go a little bit further up or further back to hit the top of off stump. If you're playing at the wacker and it's bouncing, well, the wacker of old, you need to get the ball further up because that will hit the top of off stump, not the ball that's further back. So them understanding the right lengths on the different surfaces we, we played on. I, I try to be as mature as I could with them. You know, they, they probably spoke a little bit above where they were. But I think they agree. Awesome, awesome! What a great insight. Now, going back to your career, um, we've had just had a wonderful discussion, which we were going to get to in, <laughs> onto anyway. But back to your career, you then finished your career in South Africa and went and played in England. Yeah, it, it was a difficult one. I was actually captain of um, a team in Johannesburg, um, so it was Transvaal in the past. I think now they play under the name of the Lions, and I had a bit of a falling out with the CEO over a, over a selection issue. And um, he basically said to me, look, you, must, you need to resign as captain, but you keep going. And I said, I'm not resigning. But anyway, I got fired as the captain. And um, I immediately phoned a guy by the name of James Whitaker, who was, he's actually, he's just resigned as the convener of selectors for England. And he was the, the CEO of, um, of, of Leicester County Cricket Club at the time, or the, the, the cricket manager. And he had got hold of me to ask me if I was interested. And I finally immediately said, okay, I'm interested in going down this coal pack route, which is considered mercenary for some for some reason. Um, and I I signed the deal and I went across. They wanted me to captain in my first year there. 
they were a, they were a struggling county that had huge success. They won the county championship, I think, in '96 and '98. Uh, Phil Simmons, the West Indian, was their overseas professional then. Um, they had some really good county players, um, and they'd struggled struggled ever since. Um, and I shouldn't have taken that job because I didn't know the English the English way, and I found myself hitting my head against the wall for most of that season. I uh, did have the, the privilege of playing with, with Chris Rogers that year. He came across and sub-proed. Uh, we had a, I think we had a, an Indian guy by the name of Dinesh Mongia who was our pro, and then he had to leave. To, he got picked for India, so Chris came across, and Chris got a double hundred against it. We played against Australia at Grace Road, uh, which is the Leicester ground, and he got a double hundred. He smashed uh, Stuart McGill. It was a great innings, and I think elevated him. We are chatting off here into the stratosphere as far as Australia was concerned, and he was put back on the map again. Um, but I loved my time in county cricket. Uh, I'd, I'd reached a point in my career, I was 30 when I started there, and practicing was something that I didn't, I just wanted to play. I, practicing was now tiring, you know what I mean? I practiced so much now, I just wanted to bat. And that's what county cricket gave me. I could bat six days a week, and on the seventh we rested and played. You played so much cricket. And I can understand there's criticism for county cricket because the amount of, of uh, bowling that bowlers have to do. I wasn't a bowler, so I didn't have to worry. Uh, and they did have to do a lot of work, but from a young batsman's point of view, wow, to be able to go there and bat every single day, you don't have enough time to dwell on the failure because the next one comes. And you don't, if you're in bad form, you've got to deal with that mentally because there's no time to go into the nets and now start working out what you're doing wrong. You've got to deal with it. Um, but on the flip side of that, if you're playing well and the next innings just keeps coming and coming and coming, you know, you just runs flow and it, it, it was an amazing experience to go and play those five years of, of county cricket under the, the Colpac agreement, which, uh, you know, there was a, a young boy that wasn't very happy with me. He, 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 he was always nattering behind my back, you know, guy mercenary coming to take the English pound. He's only got the South African rand. And, because the feeling was that we were taking up English, uh, young English players' jobs. And I remember going to him, ironically, his name's Tom. Uh, <laughs> and I said to him, I said, and Tom, the day you average 30, and I said, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm only asking for you to average 30. The day you average 30, I'll pay for my own ticket home. But I knew he was never going to average 30 because he was just one of those guys who, um, your journeyman, you know, he was just going to play and play and play, but never excelled. And again, it's ironic that English cricket, while the Colpacks were playing in county cricket, which started in 2004, England had a had a rise in their in their fortunes as a as a side, and not because of me, because of th they had a number of Colpack players playing around the country, and I think it strengthened the county system. Um, to the point which it can only benefit your, your national side when the best are playing against the best rather than you're playing against the county and know well if I have to deal with that bowler that's fine but I've got two other mugs who, who can't deal with it so you know I was a, I was a fan of it and I think the good players in England were, were fans of it mm. but I think the lesser players weren't. I, th I think it's fascinating to hear your, your sort of take on the, the system. I obviously spent I spent six seasons playing in England, three as a professional with Middlesex, and I absolutely loved the element of playing all the time. And like you say, when you're in form, you just can't wait to bat again. It, I did find it tough at times when I was struggling a bit and then I had to bat again, and, and that was a challenge in itself. But the, the fact that you get to... That's something that I've struggled with here in, in Perth, and I know a lot of players is you might not have a bat for three weeks in grade cricket, and you can hit all the balls in the world during the week, nick off early or get a dodgy LBW and, and it can really sort of put you back and you, you might be five or six weeks between innings and I just love that about the English system. Um, now you made 309, not out, a uh, record breaking innings for Leicester against Glamorgan. Can you sort of take us back to that time in your career or at any other point where you mentioned your 500s on the bounce in South Africa? What do you think you were doing at that point in time, what were you doing well that allowed you to perform so well? I'd probably be a very interesting case study for a, for a psychologist because I think I did it all ask about face in that when I got those, those four or five hundreds on the bounce in South Africa, um, I was sort of the lone ranger in the in the Western Province side under Duncan Fletcher in that Herschel Gibbs had been picked for South Africa, Jacques Callis had been picked for South Africa, Brian McMillan had retired. It, we were a weak side because of international call-ups and I was sort of the one batsman that had, I couldn't get in the national side even though a few months later I, I got in but I was that one player and Duncan Fletcher 
I think I felt that he gave me more. Um, and whether I hold that against him, I don't hold that against him, not at all, in that he had a lot of players to deal with when he had Callis and all these, these stars in the side. But I almost, I just had this feeling that, that he was sort of, right, you, you my man. And um, so I felt important. Whereas with Callis and Gibbs there, I almost felt, oh, you know, they're the good players, which again is wrong. I, I shouldn't think like that. And I didn't later on in my life when I went to England and places like that where I felt as I was the best player. Um, so I felt important. I felt wanted. I went and did well. The 300 was an interesting one because I'd been in a long-term relationship with someone um, and because of my move to England, it broke off and I was a shambles. Mentally, I was a complete shambles. And it was almost as if, because I had my best year in, in county cricket that year, I got 1,800 runs, which was just behind Rampakash, I think 2,000 or something, is that it was almost that in the middle was where I was comfortable your like release I, I, yeah I, I didn't have to think about the drama that had been going on off the field um and i actually found a guy by the name of paddy upton um to get those answers paddy upton i think was with the sydney thunder here and to get those those answers you know said him i don't understand this i shouldn't be doing well because mentally i am a mess and and he gave me the thing is that like that's your comfort when you're there you don't have to think about all that stuff and that's your mind is is at ease when when you're at the wicket, um, and that's why I say I'd probably be an interesting case study because it, it I had no right to have that year, but I but I did, and it was interesting. The following year I had a horrendous year. I don't think I couldn't buy a run the following year, and everything was fine, you know. So yeah, that's the 300 was the one I spoke about where for the first time I, I was definitely in what they call sports people call the zone because if you say to me is there a particular stroke do you remember going to 100 i have no idea i, I know brendan mccullum played that game for glamorgan i know robert croft the england off spinner played <laughs> yeah i did i don't it, it's an amazing situation you know i can remember other things but that one no idea wow but a special moment obviously yeah yeah now as a batter, how did you stay focused for long periods? Something that mm. I try and work with with my younger athletes and, and I work on with myself is having a sort of a pre-ball routine mentally and physically to, to switch you on and then switch you off again and, and try and do that over and over and over again. Did you have a pre-ball routine mentally and physically? So I think the ultimate goal is that it, is, it becomes a subconscious thing. I think that's the ultimate goal because if you are consciously having to do it, you are using up that, that mental capacity that you have to concentrate to get a hundred I mean I wouldn't be able to give you the figure but I would imagine that you probably have to concentrate for 12-15 minutes in total if you're doing it correctly so at the beginning and this is something that we chat about to the boys you know I mean working at a school I ask some of the teachers I say it is how do you get these kids to focus for a 50 minute period because it's impossible you can't focus for do you do you break your class up and and they don't but, and I say to them, well, no wonder you lose the kids halfway through your class. You know, you should, for me, you should break your, your class up into little periods. So what I used to do to try at the beginning until it became a subconscious thing was uh, once the, I would focus, focus once the, the bowler would start his run up. And I think then once he got into his action, it would be a finer focus. Um, once the ball had passed or I'd scored off it or it had gone through to the keeper, is I would switch off completely. And the way that I would do that was I would try and find someone I recognize in the crowd. It's difficult nowadays in a first-class game because there's not many people in the crowd. But, you know, if it is, that was it. It was just looking, can I find someone? If it was at, if it was at Newlands and there was no one in there, is the smoke bellowing out the, the brewery chimneys? And, but to just completely defocus from, from the game. Um, and I did that by walking away, you know, and then when he's reaching the end of his mark to get back into that little box, focus again, and then the sort of the fine focus um, when he gets into his uh, into his delivery stride sort of thing. Um, Were there any cue words, any sort of phrases or I, mantras no, that you said? Think, I don't think so. I don't think so. And it's a bit similar to this this new, I call it the new Rubik's Cube, the, the trigger movement, because, you know, um, there's things that develop every uh, every so often something new crops up which comes the new craze and that's why I call it the, the Rubik's Cube or the yo-yo is that 
like I look at the trigger movement and I don't care if you do the Harlem shuffle before <laughs> before uh, the bowler bowls the ball but at point of delivery you need to be still um, and I think you look at guys like A.B. de Villiers who they have prominent trigger movements Jacques Callis Michael Vaughan had one um, they are dead still at point of delivery and when they're out of sync that's when they get knocked over when they move too late and their heads moving across the crease um, so for me the, the trigger movement is again something that needs to be subconscious um, it's something that I said I never had and then look back at footage and I had one um, but I was unaware unaware of it um, so all those kind of things I think when technique has got to become a subconscious thing if you starting to think about bat up and all those types I think you're going to come you're going to come under pressure I know some people have keywords and I'm sure there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it but I'm pretty sure that once you get to 37 or 58 that that keyword is no longer happening and I think at the beginning of your innings you might have to be saying it to just find that rhythm but I'm pretty sure you can't be saying switch on for 250 deliveries hmm. um, maybe some maybe some do but um, yeah, I think if you can get it into your subconscious, that's the way to go. What's the best way for athletes to get something from their conscious thinking mind, telling themselves what to do, to their subconscious, would you say? Yeah, well, I suppose that's, Volume. Re I suppose that's repetition, isn't it? And, yep. I, and I think when you practice. Yep. You know, I think sometimes uh, a, a practice is, um, just when I said someone will just go in and hit balls and... Um, and that's why Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday practice. Or oh, I've done its volume of practice. Well, but how um, how focused was that practice? I mean, a yeah. fifteen-minute net session on Monday is better than having five net sessions where it's just an absolute free-for-all. So I think to take your practices seriously and to get out of it what what you need to get out of it. So yeah, rep repetition. repetition. Repetition is the mother of all skill. Um, now. Uh, just before we, we sort of get towards the end and wrap up, we've had a, a great long conversation here. <laughs> Sorry. Um, what are some of the attributes you've seen having played with and against um, some of the best players in the world? What are some of the attributes you've seen as a consistent theme with those best players? Uh, Jacques Callis for me stood out, I'll never forget many years ago, um, transformation came into South African cricket uh, where there was um, selection criteria and um, I remember going to him and saying to him, you know, does this not bother you? Does this not bother you that, you know, there's certain criteria with regard to, to selection? And I was young. And he said to me, I just make sure I'm never in the equation. So all he focused on was his own performance. And I think sometimes we can get caught up in other people's performance, you know, like, oh, look, I'm scoring more runs than him and that type of thing, rather than his philosophy was simple. I'll score runs, I'll take wickets, Selection is never an issue, you know, as long as I focus on what what I what I can do. So for me, he was he was he was phenomenal in that regard. Um, Gary Kirsten and Herschel Gibbs. Herschel Gibbs was, and I'm sorry to refer to South African cricketers, but these will be names that people will remember. Herschel Gibbs often referred to as a as a sort of a, a bit of the a, a clown or the joker of the pack. But those two had such a great work ethic. Kirsten and 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 uh, and Gibbs, they opened the batting for South Africa together. Together they opened with for my provincial southwestern province, and when they had a throwdown, gee, was uh, someone was going to get killed because they didn't throw off volleys. They worked each other over. They would ask for new balls, um, which is a luxury you have as a professional cricketer. You can get new balls for a, a throwdown, and they bounced each other. They tried to knock each other over, and I used to just sit and watch and think, wow, this is this, they're not going through the motions here. This is not just half volley after half volley. This is a that's a proper session. So, yeah, those two, their, their work ethic and, and, and Callis's attitude will forever be etched in my memory and why they had the success they had. And I'm sure that practicing together built incredible trust between the two of them that when they were under fire and in a fiery situation, mm. they had each other's backs. Absolutely, and, and the understanding of each other's games, you know. So, if, I mean, they used to speak about it. If, if Herschel got a little loose, Gary could see it. You know, and he would communicate, go down the wick and say, listen, you need to tighten up a little bit here. You know, we, we're in a test match. It's not a one-day international. And th that trust to say, it's coming from Gary, I'll do it. Um, and also that trust to know that if there's anyone that knows my game, 
it's it's him mm. you know so yeah I, I, again you know that's where cricket is such a when i say a unique game is that it is a team game played by individuals but those are the team aspects which are often overlooked i mean i look at the schoolboy side that i've been working with over the last year and a half at guildford and, and i and i look at how i can sit on the sideline and say oh he's struggling he's struggling but his partner just stands with his bat next to him doesn't and, and it doesn't go and, and say to him look hang in there so you know those are the kind of conversations that, that we would have you know why are you not trying to help your mate but granted he probably hasn't recognized it um but you know those are the kind of, of, of kind of things which they will they will learn going forward in, in what makes up a team dynamic yeah which is what well, they probably don't understand just yet now, looking back on your career or, or even in your life now, do you have any specific habits or routines or did you? I think something I've noticed across the board in all walks of life is some of the most successful people in the world follow quite specific habits and routines. Some don't, but it's quite quite common that a lot do. So, when I say organised, um, again, my late father always just said to me, if you can't get the simple things right, how are you going to get the tough things right? And tough things are getting hundreds. That's very, very difficult. So if you can't if you can't dress correctly, if you when I say dress correctly, and you know, there's always a team uniform or something. If you can't be punctual, you've got no chance. So he used to, you know, always say, and and I think I'm I'm pretty organised. So from as far as routine is concerned, I was ready to go at eight o'clock the night before. You know, what I mean, my bags were packed, my kit was ready, my boots were clean, the spikes were tightened. I didn't get to a ground, and now I suddenly have to. Oh, I'm missing a spike, or oh, my gloves are still wet, or whatever it may be from practice the day before. Um, yeah, and I, he taught me that. In that, he was just if you can't get the simple things right, you're not going to be able to do the difficult things right, and the difficult things are scoring runs. That's hard. Excellent. That's a great insight. Now, just a last couple of quick questions. Um, what was the what's probably the best piece of advice you've ever received? If you could think of something. Um, yeah, it actually wasn't advice I received. It was a, a saying that I found. Um, and it was the greatest accomplishment in life is not in never having fallen, but in how quickly one stands up after having fallen. And I liked it because it's the game that, that I chose to play where you fall a lot. And if you don't get up, you're going to have a you're going to have a miserable time of it. So it was always, you know, get up and go again. Yeah, excellent. Great, great piece of advice. And what's your definition of success? Oh, <laughs> gee, that, that is now, what is my definition of success? Am I happy? Uh, yeah. Am I? Am I? Am I content? Um, and and that doesn't go to cricket really. You know, it's just am I? Am I a happy bloke? And yeah, I am. So so far, I think I've lived pretty successful. successful. Well done. Well <laughs> done. And finally, um, what do you love most about cricket, and why do you, did you play cricket? Uh the the mateship. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I I love the game. Uh, I love the the intricacies of the game, and I'm a student of the game. I love the history. I mean, I see the books here, and I'm, so my bookshelves are just covered with with cricket books and ex great players. And I'm a bit of a nuffy when it comes to that. But you know, the, the the amount of friends that that I've made from all around the world is that is just gold. You know, that 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 is it. Um, I'm sure all the other sports probably have this have the same. But yeah, I made some lifelong lifelong friends. I mean, the runs come and go. You know, those, those memories, they're there, but your friends are for that forever. Absolutely. HD, thank you very much for your time. What a brilliant uh, interview. And uh, thanks for sharing all that great information and stories with our viewers. Only a pleasure, anytime. And there you have it, legends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. HD Ackerman was a great player and is fast becoming a great coach. It was amazing to hear his insight into playing cricket in Cape Town and at the time of recording the interview was before the ball tampering controversy. It was also great to hear his insights into growing up in a cricketing family as well as transitioning into coaching and how he's already tasted success. I really enjoyed connecting with Hilton and hearing his ideas and philosophies on life and the great game. If you enjoyed it or learned something then please share it with your friends and on your social media pages. And remember to tag me at Skulls5 as I'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Cricket Mentoring. We're growing it quickly and have some great content on there, including the video of this interview. Thanks very much for spending time with me listening to this episode. You're all legends, now go out and get it done.